0: For God's help, before we read his word. God, we are your redeemed people. No longer is our identity sinner, though we do still struggle with sin. Our identity is now in Christ. What a sweet and glorious truth. You now look at us as righteous, not because of anything that we have done, but because of what your Son has done for us. And so now we come before you, not with with some confidence in and of ourselves that we have conjured up, not with some positive thinking, but with the gospel, pleading with you, our Heavenly Father, to help us. We know if we are at all connected to other believers in this church that there are so many great needs. There are are people struggling with physical ailments, diseases, sickness. There are people struggling with, with something that is even often harder, with family division and strife. People struggling with great losses in their lives, family members that are no longer here. And so we come now before you, Because of Jesus asking that you would meet with us, Father, that your spirit would be in us and strengthening us through the preaching of your word, that again I ask you as the preacher this morning to overcome the weaknesses in this sermon and to feed your people well. Lord, you are so good, so gracious, so kind to us. You are compassionate. You did not give us up to our sins, but you pursued us, brought us to yourself, you revealed the glory of your Son and you have granted us repentance and faith. And so we now pray for those that you have brought into this place, maybe even who profess to be believers but who are truly not, that you would show them the great things that you have shown us, that you would change their hearts and that they would, too, taste and see, they would look and see how good you are. We pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Mark six fourteen through 29. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, He is Elijah. And others said, He is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is the word of the Lord. This morning's passage, which is quite startling, tells us about the death of John the Baptist, and it is an interruption. Now, by interruption, I don't mean anything negative. It's not that this passage is an interruption in the same way that a person is an interruption when they come and you're trying to tell somebody a story and they interrupt you. They say annoying things. They keep on interjecting or trying to finish your sentence. Not, not in that way is this passage an interruption. After all, God's word is perfect. Every passage is exactly where it should be. God does not need an editor. Rather, by interruption, I mean that this passage divides verses that would naturally seem to fit together. Just prior to this passage about John the Baptist's death, we were told how Jesus sent out the twelve on a short-term mission trip, and then after it, we were told that the twelve apostles returned to Jesus to report to him on how their trip had gone. Now, if we read them together, we can see just how nicely these two passages would have fit together if there wouldn't have been this interruption. Mark 6, 12 and 13, which we looked at last week. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done. And taught. you see? It, it, it would make sense for these two passages to be put together and, and to put the story about John the Baptist's death right after verse 30 at least or, or after the next section that we'll look at next week. So why this interruption? Why would Mark go from the 12 to John the Baptist and then back to the apostles? Why would the Holy Spirit, who is the ultimate author of Scripture, put this passage in this place? Well, the answer is to help us. All scripture is given to the people of God to help us. So that's, that's the, and I, I don't mean this in a negative sense, but that's the Sunday school answer. It's there to help us. It's a good, Sunday school answers are good answers, if they're right. This passage about John the Baptist is a helpful interruption, and it actually fits quite well, sandwiched between Mark 6.13 and Mark 6.30. See, though the focus shifts from the disciples to John the Baptist and then back to the apostles, the theme of the entire section of Scripture remains the same throughout. And that theme is discipleship. Jesus had just told the twelve that they would be rejected because of the message that they were to proclaim. And the passage that follows tells us how John the Baptist was rejected and martyred because of the message that he proclaimed. Do you see that? He's telling them, you're going to go out, you're going to preach this, and some people are going to reject it. Take off your sandals and and shake off the dust that's on them and continue. And right after that, we hear about John the Baptist being rejected and, and martyred church the gospel of Jesus Christ is so good so good so beautiful so amazing so glorious there is no other way that we can be saved than apart from Jesus Christ's death and resurrection the message of the of the cross is glorious our ears cannot hear anything more splendid or wonderful there's nothing better that you can hear for a a couple to wait and and wait and wait and pray for for the news that that they've been praying for all along that they're waiting, that that they're going to be parents. That news is not as good as this news. The news that, that the cancer is not spread is not as good as this news. This is the best news that anybody could ever hear. The good news for sinners And yet so many will reject, despise, and hate the gospel and those who seek to share it with other people. It's the best news that you could ever hear and yet some will hear it and say that is terrible. Get away from me. Shut your mouth. In John the Baptist, we are given a godly example. And in the details surrounding his death, we learn valuable lessons that can help us as we follow Jesus Christ. Because, again, like we saw last week, though some of these things do not have one to one correlations to our own lives as followers of Christ, we are not apostles. That office is closed. Still, we can learn valuable lessons from the apostles and from John the Baptist. We are not prophets in the same way that John is. A prophet, but we can learn much from his life and from his death. Now, there are four different Herods that appear in the pages of the New Testament. It's not because Herod was a trendy name in first century Israel. This was not, you know, like the, the coolest, hippest name to name your, your child in Israel. It's because all four Herods are related to one another. They are all members of a dynasty of rulers that was appointed by the Romans. After the Romans took over, they conquered and then took over the Jews. They set up Jewish rulers, not in the same line of King David, but, but this, this family, the, the family of Herod, and, and they would rule over. They were, they were mouthpieces. They, they really were the hands and feet of, of Rome, And they thought that by putting people that were of the same uh, people that they had conquered, that they would be listened to. So that's what what the the Herod um, dynasty is about, pointed by Rome. Now, for our purposes this morning, it's helpful to differentiate between the first and the second Herod. The two other Herods, I'm just going to let you study uh, this afternoon in your devotional time. I know someone's going to do that. Now, the first Herod is known as Herod the Great, he had ten wives, and he murdered one of his own sons. Not a good guy. He can be found in Matthew 2. He is that Herod. He's the Herod who attempted to trick the wise men into telling him where the Messiah baby Jesus was, the long-promised Messiah was, and he's the one that, desiring to kill Jesus, sent, sent a, a group of troops to wipe out all the, the baby boys two and under in Bethlehem. That's Herod the Great. He was a wicked, paranoid, and evil man. Now the second Herod is Herod Antipas, and he is the Herod that we encounter in this morning's passage. He was one of the sons of Herod the Great who survived his father's fury. He was one of the the lucky ones, and he followed in his father's footsteps when it came to wickedness, paranoia, and evil. Though Mark refers to him as a king, his official title was tetrarch, which means one who governs a fourth. Because when his father died, the Romans split up his, his kingdom into fourths and one of the, the parts of that kingdom was given to Herod Antipas and that part was the region of Galilee. Now not only was Herod Antipas the one that executed John the Baptist, he is the Herod in Luke 23 who Pilate sent Jesus to after he was arrested and he is the Herod who treated, we're told he treated Jesus with contempt and he mocked him and then he sent him back to Pilate who would eventually give in to the demands of the crowd and crucify our Lord. Herod Antipas is the anti-John. If you want to try and differentiate who these these Herods are, he's Herod Antipas, the anti-John. Whereas John the Baptist gives us an example of godliness, Herod Antipas gives us an example of ungodliness. Well, John was the voice crying out in the wilderness that prepared the way for the Lord Jesus Christ, Herod was the drunk at the party, hopelessly headed towards hell, bringing with him everybody else who would follow him. Now in this passage, the grossness of sin is on display, and we, re- we are reminded of our need for a Savior. This is one of the lessons. I think I had like 12 at one point, and so I, I kind of smushed them together, so I think they fit well together, these two. In this passage, the grossness of sin is on display, and we are reminded of our need for a Savior. Herod Antibus had married his niece, Herodias, who was also married to his half-brother, Philip, Herod Philip, of course. She was his niece, his sister-in-law, and now his wife. I mean, if, if somebody's looking for a soap opera, you know, looking for material for a new soap opera, I think you could call it the Herods, and you'd have plenty of material. This was bigamy and adultery, and it was all against God's law. Leviticus 18, 16 says that a man must not sleep with his brother's wife. I mean, that's Common sense, right? God had to put it in his law because we will invent and we will do wicked things. And Leviticus twenty twenty one says that if a man marries his brother's wife, it is impurity. Herod and Herodias were living in sin and John confronted Herod multiple times. Verse 18 in our text says, for John had been saying to Herod, he, it, this is multiple times he confronted Herod and his sin. He had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now, this offended Herod, but even more Herodias. So, Herod had John arrested in prison and for his own safety. He knew that his wife couldn't stand John even more than he couldn't stand John. And as we see in this text, there's something intriguing to Herod about John the Baptist. And so, he imprisons John, partly just to protect John from his own wife. I mean, if you, you see that this is a dysfunctional marriage, clearly. Now on top of all this, we find in this passage um, a mother in Herodias who is willing to use her young daughter as a means by which she can get revenge against an innocent, godly man. And we find a large group of men lusting after a young woman and one of those men is the girl's own stepfather. I mean, this is just gross. This whole passage is filthy with sin. Now these are not the sins of bygone days. We can't say, you know what, we've We've progressed as humans. I mean, here's another reminder that, no, we are not going forward as as humans. Apart from the grace of God, we will go the same and if not worse. We as humans have not moved past or matured beyond these disgusting and gross sins. If anything, as Romans 1 speaks about, we continue to invent new and more disgusting ways to sin. We're not better than Herod as as a whole, as as a humanity and what was going on then in first century Israel. Gross and sad things, just like what we find in this passage, continue to happen and will continue to happen until Christ returns to restore all things. We cannot fix this. Only Jesus can. Anyone who knows even a little bit about the sex trafficking going on in the world, you know this stuff is going on. It's disgusting. Anyone who, who, who reads the stories in, in the newspaper or turns on the news knows that there are parents, coaches, teachers, and other trusted adults physically, emotionally, and sexually abusing children. Friends, these things, these gross things continue to happen, and they happen right here in the USA, and they have happened here in New Berlin but we must not think that it's sins like these that are just gross. It's, it's the, this extra level. Yes, they are gross, and there are levels to how, how gross sins are to God, how, how certain sins are detestable before God. They're all detestable in one way, but in another way, there there's certain ones that are at a whole different level. But all sin is gross. They are acts of rebellion against God. They break his good and perfect law, and they oppose his righteous rule and reign over our lives. He made us as his people. We are to come under willingly his authority, his rule and reign. Sin is disgusting, and not just Herod's sin or Herodias's or, or sin in a vague and distant sense. Friends, our sin is gross. Our sin is disgusting. And we deserve God's justice. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We, like Herod and Herodias, deserve God's wrath. That's that's hard for us to sometimes wrap our minds around. We deserve what Herod and Herodias deserve. God's wrath. We deserve the, the same end that they deserved and it seems that they likely got. We are no more deserving of God's grace than they are. This is not some means of beating ourselves up. This is a means of us really able to appreciate the gospel if we truly understand what we deserve. You know where pride and boasting comes from? It comes from I think partly not having a good doctrine of sin. If you understand sin and not just sin but your own sin, how can you be prideful? And this reality, friends, of the grossness of our sin and what we deserve from God because of our sin reminds us of our great need for a Savior. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. The gospel-believing Christian who, who gets that the gospel is not just one door that you open and walk in in the Christian life, but the house that you live in is always pointed back to the gospel. So when, when the doctrine of sin comes up, when they're reminded of their own sin and the grossness of sin, they don't linger there forever. They sit there and, for a minute, and then God quickly brings them into the joy of the gospel. This morning's passage reminds us of, yes, how gross sin and our own sin is, but also how much we needed a Savior to rescue us from sin and to pay for our sin and how that Savior is Jesus Christ. Herod and Herodias, God does this all the time. They're used ultimately to point us to Christ. We learn lessons from godly people and we learn lessons from ungodly people. Now, this passage not only captures the grossness of sin, but the power of sin and the power of God's word. We can see the power of sin and how even though Herod knew that John the Baptist was a just and holy man, and even though Herod would gladly hear John speak to him, even about his own sin, there was something that Herod would not do. He was intrigued by John, he liked to listen to John. He in a weird, twisted way, he he liked to be rebuked by John. Just tell me how bad I am, John. This is great. This is great. He liked to be to, to be told about his sin. But there is one thing he would not do. He would not give up his sin. He would not turn from his adultery into the Lord. He would not give up Herodias. Sin had taken hold of his heart and it would cost him his soul. Sin is powerful. That is why we, we can know the truth that, that sin leads to pain, destruction, and death. It always does. You know that. If you're raised in, in the church, if you're raised in a Christian home, sin, you know, leads to pain destruction and death. You know that sin will hurt you and others and that sin separates you from the God who made you and loves you. And yet, despite all these things, you and I can and do still choose to sin. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. It's illogical. This is going to hurt. So don't do it. And yet we keep on doing it. Because sin is powerful. And this side of heaven though we are righteous before God, declared righteous because of Christ, we continue to go through this process of sanctification and we need to remember, church, that sin is powerful. It's not to be messed with. It's not to be played with. Now in this way, Herod provides us with a warning. Friends, do not follow Herod's way. Do not hold on to any sin and do not be proud. I mean, if you look at this passage, one of the things that, that I didn't go into is, is the pride of Herod in this passage. I mean, how should he have responded when, when Herodias' daughter, probably named S- um, Salome or Salome, when, when she said, hey, give me John's head on a platter, he should have said, you know what, everybody here, I know that I said these things, but I cannot do that. But because of his pride, because of the sin of pride, he said, I've got to keep my word. Don't be proud. Let nothing prevent you from coming to Christ and salvation. Nothing. Let nothing and no one come between you and Jesus Christ. He is Lord and only he can save you. There's a real possibility that some people in here are under conviction. Now for some of us, and this is how we like it to happen, it happens like in a service and then in that same service God saves us brings us out of conviction and into his kingdom we repent and trust in him and and it's awesome but sometimes it's it's months even years of of wrestling with with the world and with God with submitting to Christ or continuing to follow the world. And so there are people here right now who are likely under conviction. The Spirit is working in your heart, reminding you of the truth of the gospel, of your need for Christ, of the foolishness of sin. And to you, I say, don't wait another day. Don't just sit on conviction, playing games with God. He knows your heart. You cannot trick him. You cannot fool him. You cannot keep anything secret from him. He knows your heart and... And you know your heart to some degree. And you know that you've been playing games. Jesus is Lord and only he can save you. So don't delay. Don't let anybody, it it, it might be a girlfriend, a boyfriend, a fiance, maybe even a, a child who is pulling you away from from God. That doesn't mean you abandon them necessarily, but it does mean that you, you put up a, a boundary and you say, I'm following Christ and I will not let you drag me. You will not be a Herodias to me. Believer, so shifting gears, believer, are you gripped by some particular sin? Has sin taken hold of you? Well, turn away from it today and turn to Jesus Christ, for He has freed you from sin. You don't have to sit in it anymore. It leads to pain and suffering. It's going to destroy you and your family. And so don't stay there. Leave it, flee it, and run to Christ today. Through faith, Christ has caused us to be born again, brought us out of death, freed us from the grips of sin, and into life. Romans 6:12 through 14 tells us this and exhorts us to flee sin. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. So Christian, consider your heart today. Make sure that there is no secret lust or hidden sin that you are living in. Separate yourself from your own Herodias, who is dragging your heart away from Christ and into sin. Jesus is so much better. So much better. He loves you. He came and died for you so that you might be united to him now and forever. Now! Enjoying him now. So set aside sin and by faith grab hold of Jesus today. Follow John's example and not Herod's example. Now at the same time that this passage shows us the power of sin, it also shows us the power of God's word. Herod feared John and John did not fear Herod. John boldly confronted Herod and his wife and their sin and Herod couldn't help but listen. He was perplexed by John and he heard him gladly. Now what's that about? I mean because lo- the logic would say here's a ruler with the authority to kill you, John, you should fear him. And yet it's flip-flopped. The ruler, this king, this tetrarch, is afraid of John, this interesting man who roams around in the wilderness. He's got an interesting attire, if you remember what he wears, interesting diet. This is an odd guy. And this ruler with all this power, with all this wealth, is afraid of him. Herod fears John the Baptist when he's alive, and he fears John the Baptist after he dies. Why? Because God's word is powerful. Powerful. The only weapon that John the Baptist had was God's word. It was his sword, and that was enough. Now, I'm not going to wander into trying to give my opinion or counsel on on the current state of of politics and and the government and where this country is headed America is, is not uh, the same thing as the church, all right? I'm not saying that the church shouldn't involve and impact the culture and the world. Yes, we should. We are to be a gift to this country. But what I want to remind you here, this is, this is what I'm, I, I want to say, is that you need God's word more than you need a certain president. That is the weapon that we wield as Christians. Hebrews four twelve and 13 For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Herod was naked and exposed because of God's word. He was cut to the heart. didn't change him, but it made him fearful. God has not left himself without witness. He has given us his word and in the hearts of unconverted people, even kings, God's word has powerful effects. It made Herod afraid. So we must remember, church, that the power is not in a program. We must not turn to pragmatism or our own abilities. That's humanism. The power is in God's word being proclaimed boldly, but with love. They go together Think about John coming to Herod and telling him, Repent of your sin. Now, some say that that's rude. Herodias thought that was rude. You know what? I think that that's loving. He risked his life. Ultimately, he died because he told Herod, Repent or you will be destroyed. God's judgment is coming. There's love in that. I'm always amazed at what Jesus said to the rich young ruler who came to him and said, I have kept your law. Jesus said, you've kept all the law, then then, then do this. Sell everything you have and go give it to the poor and then come follow me. I'm amazed by something he said just before that to the, uh, the rich young ruler or that we're told about what Jesus said. He loved him. He loved him. And the way that he loved him is he confronted his idol and that idol was his money. And so Jesus said, give it all up. And come follow me because he knew that that idol his wealth everything that he had was keeping him from Jesus and so Jesus loved him by saying get rid of it and come follow a greater treasure and that treasure is me John the Baptist was attacking an idol that Herod had made he loved him well even though it was a hard word and so we must preach and teach God's truths our work will not be in vain even if it seems like no one is listening that no one is hearing the gospel. The spirit is working inside people's hearts in ways that we cannot see. We we went through the parables already. The mustard seed, right? Gospel seeds are being planted. The spirit is convicting people of their need for Christ. And the spirit is gonna lead some of them to repentance and faith in Jesus. So we must not trust in our words, but God's word. We don't have to manipulate things. We have to love people well and one of those ways that we love them well is by telling them to repent and to turn to Jesus because God loves them and sent his son to die for them. There's not a a, a fire and brimstone message there. It is fire and brimstone and grace at the same time. Fire is coming. So flee to Jesus who will protect you, who will save you, who went to the cross to free them from sin and to bring them to God. John the Baptist's death also reminds us, church, that there is always a cost to following God and to serving Jesus Christ. This is so important for us as Western, fairly wealthy American Christians. It cannot be comfortable. It just doesn't jive with scripture. It does not fit to follow Jesus no matter what culture we're in. We looked at last week and I I exhorted you and myself to, to not pray for prosperity but to pray for more faith in Christ, to be more reliant as a church here and universally on God, not more reliant on stuff. For John, the cost was his life. John's death not only prefigures Jesus' death, but it also prefigures the death of anyone who would come and follow Jesus. In this way, John the Baptist is a great example of what it looks like for someone to do what Jesus says in Mark 8, 34 and 35. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. John the Baptist denied himself. He took up his cross and followed God. And he truly lost his life for Christ. Now for some Christians, especially in certain parts of the world, where Christians are beaten in prison and martyred, it's going to look the exact same for them, for them to lose their life, for, for the cost to be their very lives, physical life will be taken from them. That will be the cost. However, for the vast majority of us in this church today, the cost will not be physically losing our own lives. We will not be killed because we follow Christ or for the sake of the gospel. We need to be careful what we call persecution. When we compare what, we, or what our brothers and sisters are facing in the Middle East and in other parts of the world, then we say, you know, they call me names. You know, I'm, It's not as comfortable here anymore. That's not persecution. But still, we will face persecution. There will be a cost. It might be our reputation, career, relationships, money, popularity. When you turn from sin and turn to Christ, there is a cost. There's a great benefit, which we'll look at in a second, but there is a cost. There's no route to Christ that will, will not require for you to lose something. We too must lose our life for Christ in the gospel. This will look different in each of our lives, but it will be true of all Christians. For, for you to lose something is going to look different than for me to lose something. For you to follow Christ, it, it, it may look a little bit different in your station, in the position that you get called in, God might have put you in a a certain position, given you certain skills in business or whatever. You don't need to become a pastor or a preacher or whatever, an evangelist, and give up your secular job to glorify God. It's going to look different in different people's lives, but it's going to have the same theme. It's going to cost you. And this brings us to a final lesson from this passage and a good one to end on. In Matthew 11:11, Jesus said that among those born of women, there has n- never arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Jesus said John the Baptist was the greatest man, apart from him, who is the God-man, to have ever lived. And yet think about his life and his death. He was unjustly imprisoned and then brutally murdered. John the Baptist's death reminds us, and his life reminds us, that our greatest reward will not come in this world. It will not come. No matter how good your life is here, it will not compare to what awaits you as a Christian in the life to come. J.C. Ryle in his commentary puts it this way. We see in these verses how little reward some of God's best servants receive in this world. John served God faithfully. He was was called the, the best man to have ever been born by Jesus and look at his life, not comfortable, not prosperous in a material sense at all. Short, he died around 30 or so, one year of ministry, very little fruit. So many godly men and women have given up their lives for Christ and receive little to no reward in this life. There is Stephen and James as well as the other apostles. There are so many others which we can read about in books like, the Fox's, like Fox's Book of Martyrs, magazines that tell us about the persecuted church. But even if we don't lose our lives in the same way as these martyrs, we will too not experience the greatest rewards that await us, Christian. It's amazing to think about. For the Christian, the best things are yet to come. Our rest. Oh, how so many of us are tired, Right? For good reason. We're pouring out ourselves. And we don't want to complain about this, but there's something good about being tired. It means that we're spending our life. We're not wasting it on the couch. We're in prayer. We're on our knees. We're, we're meeting with people. We're, we're sacrificing certain things that the world is chasing so that, that we can give more to others in need. Our rest, our crown, our wages, our reward our being fully with and in the presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is not going to happen here. It's going to happen on the other side of the grave. Here in this world, we will have tastes of glory and reward, glimpses of what awaits for us. And they're so good, whether they're they're physical blessings, whether they're family, relational blessings, the relationship that we might have with a child or our parents or, or friendship. They are just taste. They're so good. I don't mean to set them aside and say, oh, it doesn't matter. No, they're so good. But they they just wet our tongues. They just kind of help us along, reminding us what truly awaits the believer. And if we think, if we think about it, oh, it's so sweet what awaits. This reality caused Paul to write in Romans 8.18 this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The Apostle Paul could press on even as he faced much suffering, trials, and persecution because he was awaiting the glory. He was longing and expecting and excited about the glory that was going to be his in the next life that was going to be revealed in Christ's return. What, re- what rewards await those who trust in and follow Jesus Christ? What blessings are coming to the one who counts the cost and loses their life for the sake of Christ and the gospel? Well, in Mark 10, 29 and 30, Jesus tells his disciples this, I assure you, there is no one who has left house, brothers or sisters, mother or father, children or fields because of me and the gospel, who will not receive a hundred times more, now at this time, houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children, and fields with persecutions, an eternal life in the age to come. It's interesting there that he says some of this is even going to happen now. My take on that, quickly, is that because we have Christ. How can we have, uh, how can we leave all these things and not have them anymore and then Jesus say, okay, you'll have it now and in the life to come because Jesus is that good, (laughs) And so he's that precious that precious that when you leave and you forsake whatever it is that you must forsake to follow Christ, you have Jesus. And so it's 100 times better than whatever you had before. 100 times 100 better. And then it's even better in the life to come. And Peter writes this in 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4 that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, Christian. Is it worth it? Is it worth setting aside the passing treasures of this world, setting aside sin which leads to pain, suffering, and destruction, for an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, Christian? Yes! It's worth it. Would John the Baptist have changed anything about his life in regards to following following God and and laying the the pavement for Christ? No, because he knew it was worth it. It's worth it, Christian. Of course, Christian, he is worth it. And the wait is worth it. You press on and some days the the depression, the despair, the melancholy sinks in and, and you start to question, is it worth it? I could give in. I could go to Facebook for, for joy rather than to Christ. I could follow the world. Is it worth it? Yes. It's worth it. He's worth it. As I thought about these things, uh, I was reminded of a short but, but wonderful, powerful quote that has encouraged me and I think will encourage you. I, I heard it from John Piper at a sermon at, uh, that, uh, that was part of the pastor's conference that we pastors went to uh, recently. And, and he said this, Life is hard. God is good. Glory is coming. Therefore, stand firm in grace. Life is hard. God is good. Glory is coming. Therefore, stand firm in grace. This is a great summary of John the Baptist. His life was hard. He knew that God was and is good, even when his life was hard. He knew that glory was coming, and he stood firm in grace. Brothers and sisters in Christ, may the same be true of us. May the same be true of us. This life is not all there is, and Christ is worth the cost, and the rewards are far greater than we can even imagine. So let the same be true of us. Let's pray. O oh God in heaven, we thank you for sending not only your Son who is our Savior, but godly men and women like John the Baptist to be an example to your people to show us what it looks like for someone to abandon the things of this world and to be fully dedicated to you. Lord, we know, we affirm that that we will not live lives exactly like John the Baptist, and you have not called us to live the same life that John the Baptist was called to live. And yet we find in him great encouragement, a great example of what it is looks like to lose your life for the sake of Christ and the gospel. Oh Father, not simply so that we can we can just say it's true of us but for the sake of your glory in our lives we pray that this would be true of us. That we would we would cling tightly to Christ and, and boldly and joyously proclaim the, the goodness of the gospel to a lost and perishing world that desperately needs to hear about Christ. Oh, Father, we pray that you would, you would bring those of us that are caught up in sin, believers who have gone back to the world thinking that they can find some sense of joy and peace in the world, that you would show them the folly of that sin and that decision and bring them back, refresh, renew the joy of their salvation in Christ. And Father, as always, we pray again for those who are here and are not in Christ. Father, do what only you can do. Show them your son. Change their hearts and bring them into your kingdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.